Hello, Michelle Laurie here. It's no secret that Australia's property market is out of control these days, but I, for one, can't seem to stop following along. I've become a bit obsessed with it, to be honest. What's up, what's down, and who on earth is paying those prices for those houses? So I want to personally recommend a podcast for you. It's called Real Property. It'll keep you across the latest information on the Australian property market in a clear and easy-to-digest way. Real Property, building a community of more informed property buyers. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. It was the 5th of April, 1932, in the evening, and a very handsome young couple were going out for a drive. This was Dorothy Denzel. She was 21. Her bloke was Frank Wilkinson. He was 26. They were a nice young couple. They were doing pretty well despite, you know, tough times. And they went out for a drive and they didn't come back. Michael Adams from the Fantastic Forgotten Australia podcast is back with us on Australian True Crime this week with one of his brilliant historical cases. Michael has a new book that's fresh off the presses. It's called The Murder Squad, How Australia's Toughest Cops Hunted the Monsters of the Great Depression. And he joins us to talk about one of those so-called monsters. As always, though, we begin by setting the scene that was the backdrop of the crimes of this man, which is to say, Michael describes what life was like in Australia a hundred years ago during the Great Depression. Yeah, we kind of get this idea that the Great Depression was this great kumbaya moment when, you know, all Australians sort of, you know, came together and, you know, they all chipped in and helped each other and all of that kind of stuff. And there's certainly that certainly did happen, but there was a really dark flip side to it as well with, you know, just massive social dislocation, massive poverty. There weren't the sort of um, social structures in place that there are today to help people. So, you know, when we hear about, you know, people being on the dole in the depression, it wasn't like, you know, you went to your bank and you got your money. It was you went to the local police and you asked for food rations and they gave you food ration tickets that you could then go and spend at stores. The period that's covered in the book is it concentrates on 1929 to 1934, which was pretty much, you know, the start of the Great Depression following the Wall Street crash, although there was already a lot of unemployment and upheaval before that in 1929. By 1934, things had started to improve. The worst period was 1932. And that also coincided in New South Wales with a spike in the murder rate. So for the three years prior to that, there'd been an average of 26 murders a year. In 1932, there were 36. So it's not a a massive jump, but it is an increase at the same time that, you know, 32% of men are out of work. And that's 32% of men who are of working age. So that's not including women who aren't Mm. working. It's not including the young. It's not including the old. So there's this huge population of people who have nothing to do, nothing to sort of, you know, keep them busy, nothing to earn money, no way to sort of, you know, feed themselves. There are instances, you know, of starvation, you know, people going hungry. The rate of self-harm and suicide appeared to, to go up quite sharply as well. People were just desperate. 
you know, I'm thinking within homes, you know, we know that unfortunately when times are tough financially, we tend to spend more money on alcohol and drugs. We still do. And so I'm thinking, you know, you're you're at home, you're unemployed, maybe Nan and Pop live with you as well. Uh, Maybe people are drinking. No wonder there's this increase in violence. Everyone's fighting about what they're spending their money on. Yep. All of these issues, the t- and then there's tension in the streets. God. Yeah, absolutely. The alcohol situation was also, you've got to remember, this was still the time of the six o'clock swill. So yeah. you couldn't legally get a drink after 6 p.m. at the pub. So, you know, men would go knock off work if they had jobs go to the pub, pound down the beers or whatever, the whiskey or the wine until six o'clock and then stagger out, stagger home with, you know, a couple of takeaways. And this often, you know, there was, you know, a lot of domestic violence. There was a lot of family violence. But obviously, I think, you know, when people have no purpose, they have no jobs, they have no work, they have no hope, things become increasingly desperate and violence is more likely. Jack Lang the state premier at the time, the Labor state premier, in 1930, as the depression got worse, his uh, policies included sort of, you know, uh, pensions and, you know, work programs and relief. But this is at the time that, you know, Australia's sliding into depression. There is not a lot of money to throw around and he is hugely opposed. So it was a really tense political time. And you've also got the rise of the new guard, the quasi-fascist movement, who really act, wanted to overthrow Lang. They wanted to, you know, have a, a coup d'etat. What's amazing to me, what I find totally extraordinary about this situation, this period, is you've got to remember also that while all of this is happening, everyone's going, how good is Farlap? Farlap is our oh. hero. Farlap has just won the Aqua Calente handicap in Mexico, and Farlap is about to race in America and show those Yanks what for. Wow, later in the year, the Poms are coming over for the test, for the Ashes. You know, Bradman's going to sock it to them this time. You've got, you know, the birth of the Talkies. There is also radio. Radio's now widespread and the ABC is just about to launch for Mm. the very first time. And then, of course, you've got the opening of that incredible triumph, that symbol of hope that was conceived back in the, you know, roaring 20s and started work on then the Sydney Harbour Bridge. You've given me shivers, yeah. Yeah. A million people in Sydney coming to the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Planes Mm. are flying over. There's a massive pageantry parade across the bridge. There are warships and ocean liners. There are the first fireworks over the Sydney Harbour Bridge that night in March. At the same time, you've got a guy called Alfred Ball who has like tried to cut out his wife's heart three days earlier in Erskineville, and he has vanished into the, you know, melted into the army of the unemployed. The cops are looking for this guy on the same day that, you know, 1,300 cops are patrolling around Sydney for the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge to ensure there's no trouble. And what should happen when the ribbon's about to be opened? A new guard fascist rides up on his horse with his sabre and cuts the ribbon to embarrass Jack Lang. I mean, that is, you know, a fascist stunt to embarrass the leader of the state. So there's just this, you know, it's just turmoil in New South Wales. You know, people are talking about the threat of civil war because, you know, there's going to be a showdown between Jack Lang's government and the federal government. And then, of course, there are actual murderers, actual monsters stalking New South Wales in increasing numbers. You know, we've got this Alfred Ball guy who's tried to cut his de facto wife's heart out and has disappeared, but he's just the first. And of course, you know, the police force at the time, I think per capita was about half the number or less than half the number we have today. You know, they had barely any cars and very few of those cars had wireless radios. A lot of stations didn't have telephone connections. You know, you, there is, as we'll hear, literally an instance of, you know, cops getting buses to crime scenes. And, you know, by the time they get there, well, the murderer's got a bit of a head start now because, you know, it's been two hours since the phone call came through. Getting buses. And, you know, we also have to remember there's no GPS, there's no surveillance cameras, there's, you know, uh, no DNA. But on the flip side, the police had other powers like, 
you know, they could verbal people. They get someone into yeah. a room, they take the statement, the police then tender that statement and evidence and say, this is what the bloke said. And the bloke and his defence say, no, it's not. And then it's up to yeah. the judge to decide whether it's actually admissible. And it's up to, if it is admissible, it's up to the jury to decide whether they believe it or not. And, you know, obviously the police had their thumbs on the scale in that circumstance. So there were enough of these incredibly violent, sensational crimes that people were wondering what's causing it. Is it, you know, the economic dislocation? One theory was that it was sunspot activity doing something to people's brains. In any case, the police were confronted with these, you know, this succession of shocking and often really sort of senseless seeming crimes. You know, when people are sort of bludgeoned, shot, bashed, strangled, whatever, with seemingly no motive, then people kind of, they become really afraid of what's going wrong with society. Which monster? <laughs> if, you, if you could pick one monster to tell us about today from your brood, who would you choose? We'll choose William Moxley. Uh, his crimes were the most shocking of 1932, among the most shocking of the 20th century, strangely largely forgotten today. I mean, we remember cases like the Pajama Girl, the Shark Arm case, the Wanda Beach murders. This was at that level at the time in terms of, you know, everyday awareness and outrage. And in terms of him being a monster, he really was a monster in the sense of, you know, Frankenstein's monster or maybe even Dracula, a being that was, you know, you feel some sympathy for. He was in in some senses created by the police, which is just amazing. The, the, what What intrigues me about this case is that it goes all the way to the top, quite literally in terms of, you know, this lowly crook, his uh, sort of patron and protector had been New South Wales's top cop, Big Bill Mackay. But I'll start at the start, you know, when the crime took place. It was the 5th of April, 1932, in the evening, and a very handsome young couple were going out for a drive. This was Dorothy Denzel. She was 21. She was a really beautiful looking girl. Um, you know, if she'd been in Hollywood, she probably would have been, you know, in the pictures. She'd worked at the GPO as a receptionist. Uh, until the Great Depression started, she'd lost her job, and then she'd taken a job as a nursemaid uh, to a family in Burwood. So her bloke was Frank Wilkinson. He was 26. He lived with his people nearby in Homebush, and he worked as a compositor with the Sun tabloid newspaper. So they were a nice young couple. They were doing pretty well despite you know tough times. They were close to their families. They went out for a spin in his red Alvis sports car, which was a two-seater, and it had a dicky seat at the back, which is kind of a, a fold-down seat. And th they went out for a drive, um, and they didn't come back. The next morning, uh, his bed hadn't been slept in, her bed hadn't been slept in, and their families, respectively, feared the worst immediately. They were very close to their families, and this was just completely out of character. So it made the papers really quickly. It very quickly emerges that the Alvis car has been found at a garage in Ashfield. It's been taken there by a man, a fairly distinctive looking man. And then the next day he's come back with another bloke and they've started stripping it. And by this stage, the news of Dorothy and, and Frank's d disappearance is everywhere. And the guy who owns the garage, who's likely in on a bit of a dodgy stolen parts thing, thinks, okay, well, you know, this is way above my criminal pay grade. He calls the police in. They stake the garage out, but the people don't return. When they search the car, they find strips of a picnic rug that have been torn into sort of ropes and a mask that's been made out of a hessian sack with eye holes cut out in the back of the car. There's also a newspaper that's open to a story about the disappearance of these two. So they're really on red alert now, like hopes are fading that they're going to find Frank and Dorothy alive. The garage owner and other witnesses come forward to say that, you know, on the night that the couple disappeared, they saw a man driving around in this Alvis. Uh, he appeared to have something wedged under the dicky seat at one, at one point. Some men come forward as well to say that they've bought bits of the car from this guy. This guy goes by v various names, 
but he's a super distinctive looking fellow. Like you take one look at him and you're not gonna you're not gonna mistake him for anybody else. He's very tall, he's thin, he's got a narrow face, kind of a, a hook nose. He has a Marcel waved kind of curly hair. Like I say, if you're gonna cast the Wizard of Oz, you'd pick him for the scarecrow. He's the kind of guy, you know, <laughs> you're not gonna mistake for too many other people. And immediately the police show the mugshots of known criminals in the area and they know exactly who they're looking for. His name is William Cyril Moxley and uh, he's not to be found at his house in Burwood that he shares with his girlfriend Linda and his son Douglas, who's 12. And he's also not found in his local haunts. He's been working cutting wood in the bush around Liverpool and he's not there either. Further, his truck, which is at his house in Burwood, has blood splashed on one of the sort of sides of the truck. And they find Hessian sacks that he uses to cart wood, and one of them has a piece cut out of it that exactly matches the Hessian sack mask found in the back of the Elvis. So from the get-go, the police are pretty sure they know who they're looking for. Now, at the time, weirdly, the police would not actually release the names or the photos of wanted people to the press. So all they said at this point was they were looking for a, a known criminal, and the manhunt was on for him. But the bigger hunt was actually for Dorothy and Frank. And on the 11th of April, they find Frank Wilkinson in a shallow grave. He's face down. His hands are tied behind his back with strips from that picnic rug. He's been severely battered around the face and his head has been blown apart at close range by a shotgun. They feel that there is absolutely no hope they're going to find Dorothy Denzel alive. So Frank's funeral is being held the next day when they find her in about half a mile away. Again, shallow grave, hands tied, battered, shot in the face, and sexually assaulted, they think. They can't determine exactly whether she'd been sexually assaulted or whether she'd had sex shortly before she was killed. On the day that Frank Wilkinson was found dead, Moxley had turned up at the house of an old neighbour of his, Frank Corbett called in for a cup of tea and said, you know, are you interested in some firewood? I'll deliver some firewood to you. And uh, Corbett had said, yeah, sure, come back in a few days. And then through the grapevine, remember, they hadn't actually named Moxley in the press at this point. Through the grapevine, Corbett realises that Moxley's, you know, the chief suspect. He calls the cops and say, the guy was just at my house. The cops come around and Corbett says to them, look, I'm going to have a gun ready for when he comes back. And they're like, there's no way he's going to come back. So they don't stake the house out. Lo and behold, two days later, Corbett and his mate have been sitting in a blind for two days with their guns, waiting for Moxley to return. They finally get sick of it and go inside the house. Just as they do this, they hear the dog barking, and there's Moxley coming up the driveway. Frank Corbett runs out and says, Bill, hands up, I know what you've done. Moxley bolts. Corbett fires a shot to try and stop him. Moxley gets away. Corbett calls the Bankstown police to tell them what's happened. This is where the constable has no car and has to get a bus and then hitch a ride the rest of the way. By the time he arrives, interviews Corbett, and then they call the CIB and the CIB get there, Moxie's got a two-hour head start. Massive search in the area around. What they don't know is he's gone to another woman's house nearby, basically done a home invasion, and is holding her and her kids hostage. Uh, He's polite. She sees that he's got a gun. He, what he wants is that morning's paper. Have you got the paper? Have you got the Daily Telegraph? She says, no, I don't get it. Did he know her or was he just blown into some random house? She had known him previously because he'd lived in the area as Hudson but didn't, didn't know who he was. Now, that morning, they'd finally actually put his picture in the Daily Telegraph, not his name or any of his aliases, but his picture. So... Moxley, having just been shot at by his, you know, former neighbour Corbett, has, I guess, assumed that he he's been identified in the paper. That's why he wants this woman's newspaper. She hasn't got one. He hangs out there all day, and then he just he leaves her a, a few coins for the chops that she cooked him. He takes a pair of trousers and off he goes. Now the the search is, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of civilians joining in this search. They're armed. They've got, you know, axes, pitchforks. It really is like something out of that film that's about to start, Frankenstein. They're combing the countryside looking for this monster and they can't find him. He is 
holed up in a bush camp and on the Friday, uh, a bloke sees this, is wandering through the bush, you know, looking for whatever and uh, disturbs him and Moxley jumps up and runs and this bloke just thinks it's a hobo, you know, there's there's a lot of them. Uh, doesn't think too much about it until the next day he goes back to the camp to see if the guy left anything behind and there's a shotgun with its stock shattered as though it's been used as a as to batter people and there mm. are two cartridges wedged in the um in the barrels there's also a kerosene tin there which will be identified as a tin that was used by the driver of the Alvis when he was trying to get petrol for it so now the search is even more concentrated and there is still absolutely no sign of Moxley. Smith's Weekly has this um, headline which, you know, actually lays out his criminal history in in graphic detail about his, you know, former offences, his supposed proclivities, his work as a suspected informer, his previous convictions. All of his stuff is in this newspaper, along with his, you know, really gruesome illustration of how he must look hiding in the bush. It's monstrous. And of course, you know, highly prejudicial for any jury member who, who might be impaneled <laughs> down the track. Yeah. But, you know, the, the newspapers um, at this time, the Sydney Morning Herald says that southwestern Sydney is in a, quote, state of fear. And the Sun newspaper's headline is terror reigns. There's calls for men like him to be flogged to be boiled alive in oil and then and or hanged. I mean, it's real vigilante sort of stuff. There's reports coming in from all over that Moxley's been seen here, there, everywhere. Of course, he hasn't. He's not in the search area. How is this possible? Well, just a month earlier, there was no way that you could get to the other side of the harbour easily. Now there is. So what he's done is he's stolen a bicycle and he's ridden it into the city and he's ridden it up to the toll booths and right there under the nose of police, he's paid the three penny toll and he's ridden his bike across to the North Shore. He's gone into bushland at Balgala. He's set up a nice little camp for himself there. He's he started to grow a beard uh, and moustache. He's used grease from the uh, bicycle chain to blacken his whiskers and his hair. And then of a night time, he goes into Mossman and Spit Junction to buy food. And he even goes into the into the picture theatre. Mm. And what does he see? He sees a talking newsreel with Inspector Chief Inspector Pryor, who's the head of the CIB, making an appeal for anybody who knows the whereabouts of William Moxley to come forward. So he's there seeing himself being talked about in this talkie, hiding down in the seats as people around him discuss this monster on the loose. So he hides out for about a week. The Sun newspaper has his front picture on the front page, his name and his aliases are known everywhere. There's wanted posters distributed all over the place. And this pays off on the 21st of April. Uh, a, a fellow sees Moxley go on his bike into the bushland, calls the Manly Police. Three detectives come up. They creep into the bush. They see him there. They say, stop. They chase him. They, he darts off into, into the undergrowth. They're looking for him. They're standing on a little cliff and they see that he's right directly beneath him. So two of them jump, and they land on him pretty much, and he's caught. So they haul him into the Manly police station. He says, I know what I'm wanted for. I did not kill those people. Coming up on Australian True Crime, our guest author and podcaster, Michael Adams, brings William Moxley's chaotic life into focus in a way the judicial system wasn't equipped or frankly designed to do a hundred years ago. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. So... Moxley was born in 1899 in Rockhampton, and we talk these days about early trauma being um, 
a determinant factor in you know your later development. Yeah. Uh, when Moxley was three, his father was shot in the stomach during a brawl, and the bullet was lodged in the in in the father's stomach. The father got compensation, which Moxley's mother then spent uh, pissing up against the wall <laughs> with, with her various lovers, leading to a divorce. So Moxley and his siblings came with the mother to Sydney. In 1910, Moxley is 11 years old. He's at a friend's place with his uh, younger brother, and they find a shotgun leaning against a fence. And the little boy says to Moxley, point it at me for fun. He does, pulls the trigger, and blows his six-year-old brother out of the world. The next year, his father finally dies from that gunshot wound, you know, almost a decade after being shot. The, the bullet in his gut finally kills him. So Moxley suffers these massive early traumas. He then gets a job at Sydney University as a, as a telephone operator. When there's a great strike in, in 1917, he works as a scab tram conductor. He joins the AIF when he's of age and or just before he's of age and goes to Europe just as the war's about to end. He has a very poor record as a soldier. He deserts. He's A-W-O-L. He marries an English girl named Ada, comes back to Sydney, and then starts his new career as a thief. He gets busted for a few petty jobs, heads up to Brisbane with his wife and his young son, and uh, he's caught there stealing with violence. So he's gone into a shop, he's grabbed some money, he's pushed a woman off a stool, he's run out, almost knocked over a woman and a child as he's made his escape. There's a hunt for him for a few days. He's caught under a bed with an unloaded revolver. In court, he says, I did not know what I was doing. It was an impulse. Something came over me. I can't really remember it. If I was stealing, it was only to provide for my wife and child. You know, I'm, I've been discharged from the war. Um, I'm not sure what's come over me. And the judge actually bought it and gave him a, a, a sort of good behavior bond. But then he legged it out of the state. He got caught on another warrant. Uh, from New South Wales, was brought down, did a bit of time, got out again, was the head of this gang that was doing bunches of robberies. And in 1923, the cops raided his uh, hideout in Redfern. They arrested his wife and his um, colleagues and Moxley legged it and he's being chased across the rooftops. And the story went that at this point he had a gun and he turned around and he pointed it at Billy Mackay who at this point was a rising sergeant. And he saw that it was Mackay and then threw the gun down and took off. And he was caught a few days later and he got three years. Later on, he'd say, supposedly, well, this is what Mackay said, that Moxley had said to him, when I saw it was you, I just couldn't do it. So Mackay could have been shot by Moxley. And it seems like he felt a bit of a debt to this guy. So he made him his informer, his fizz gig, his snitch. So... Moxley uh, is released in 1925, and like the day after he's released, <laughs> embarks on a string of cat burglaries, and he's really good, good at it, apparently. He's robbing houses all over Sydney, north, south, east, and west. Well, I suppose that makes sense in a funny way, because the, the day he's released, he's, he's broke. Yeah. He's broke, he's got a wife, a kid. Yeah. You know, you've got to make money fast. <laughs> That's it. When he gets caught, he actually pleads with the, the magistrate saying, well, you know, the prison release authorities wouldn't help me. They said that I could go down to Queenbean and do some work, but they wouldn't give me money to get there. He was always playing the sympathy card, the pity card. It's not my fault. He says it was steal or starve. And it's like, yeah, not so much, dude. You broke into 25 houses. You, you lifted 3,000 pounds worth of gear. You know, he wasn't any mastermind. He then sold this stuff for pennies on the pound. He wasn't the brightest spark. He was no master criminal. But he got given two years for all these cat burglaries, but he was also then declared a habitual criminal. And that meant they could keep you in after your sentence was up until they decided that you were free to go. So Moxley got out in 1929. Wall Street's crashed. The Depression is going on. And, you know, it's not an easy time to get work. Moxley returns to being a, a fizz gig for, the, for Mackay and for the police. In 1930, Moxley was dobbing in a bunch of bank robbers who were about to pull a job. These guys were on the way in Sutherland in the car when the cops swooped and arrested them. They had like, you know, jemmies on them. They had guns on them. They were busted big time. So these guys were uh, committed to stand trial, but they were allowed out on bail. 
who should turn up with a bullet in his head on Parramatta Road but Moxley three, three weeks later. So he's gone, he's gone out with these guys, or some of these guys, and they've been driving around when all of a sudden they've pulled a gun and said, Snowy, that was his nickname, Snowy, I'm going to shoot you. And they shot him in the side of the head, like in the ear, right? So the bullet explodes into his head. There's fragments in his ear, in the intracranial area, beneath the skin. And then on top of him, pointing the gun in his mouth, and this is it. And it doesn't fire. And he struggles free and runs onto Parramatta Road, hails a passing car, gets taken to hospital, and he says, you know, I know who did it, but I'm not going to say anything to the cops. I'm no squealer. I'll get them in my own time, which, of course, is absolute bullshit because, you know, Mackay, the very next day, is raiding places in Redfern to get these guys. (laughs) They bring them in for trial, and Moxley testifies. But when he testifies, he has to admit he's been a habitual criminal, he's been a police informer, all the rest of it. Who could trust the word of this man? And these two guys, the third one had legged it, these two guys who've been charged with attempted murder are acquitted. One's acquitted <sighs> at the direction of the judge. The other's acquitted by the jury. They go free. They'll still face charges down the track for the, the attempted bank robbery that he was instrumental in, in foiling. But it's all in the papers when, when they go to trial for that, that they've been you know jobbed by this informer, Moxley. So it's widely known now that he is a fizz gig, a snitch. I mean, oh you know, that is a death sentence in in the underworld. So he lays very, very low. He works as a wood carter. Um, He checks himself out of hospital. Like he's still got fragments of bullet in his brain. Um, Oh, sorry, in his head at least. Um, That will become an issue soon. So Moxley is now in, you know, a week after, um, a few days after Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson have gone missing and he's caught. He's got newspapers in his little camp. He's been following the details of the case. He says, I want to be taken to Inspector Mackay, to Superintendent Mackay. He's taken to the CIB. And there, over the next uh, eight hours, he's interrogated by Mackay and personally by Mackay. And he gives a statement. And he is charged with the murder of Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson. An inquest will be held in in a week or two's time. But everything that he's said... He said to Mackay in Mackay's presence alone. So, you know, it's pretty much Mackay's word. And, of course, Mackay, Big Bill, doesn't want it known that, you know, he's been paying this guy. He's actually given him money in the past two years Mm. to help him get set up in a business. This guy who has now, you know, supposedly killed these two people in the most hideous fashion. Mm. What Mackay does is he actually leaks the statement to the papers. So the Truth newspaper has the statement verbatim before the inquest. And I think that was done basically to reassure people that they had the man and also to sort of prime a jury as to the quote-unquote facts. What Moxley said was that he headed out that night in his truck, intending to go and get some wood. Uh, He had a bit of engine trouble. He came across Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson near their car and on the spur of the moment decided to rob them. Uh, They only had like, you know, I think seven shillings or something like that on them. There was a fight. He held them at gunpoint and tied them up. Then he marched them off to this cottage. Then he took the Alvis out for a spin, tried to get petrol for it, came back to the cottage. There was another fight. He beat uh, Frank Wilkinson. And then the next thing he remembers, he's driving the Alvis over a bridge at Milpera. So there's a big black space where his memory is. He says he didn't kill those people at all. If he did anything, he can't remember it. He's never been a violent person, etc., etc. One of the police there asked him, were you, were you with anyone? And he said no, but he'd soon changed the tune of that. So when the inquest happened, it had to be held in Sydney rather than in Liverpool where it would normally have been ha- held because there was such you know, community outrage. In the inquest, all the various witnesses who'd seen the Alvis being driven around, men who'd bought parts from the car from him, people who'd you know seen that he had a, an injured hand, which was you know thought to have happened during the fight with Frank, etc. At the inquest, it was revealed that he actually claimed that he'd been with another man called Snowy, Snowy Mumby, but that was actually his nickname from back in the day as well. And he also called this guy Bill, and he described this guy as being 34 years of age. He'd known him in the army. He was about 5'8 or 5'9. He was slender. 
blue eyes, sort of sandy hair. He was basically describing himself, which was not unremarked <laughs> upon at the time. So he was committed to stand trial. The trial happened in June. Um, all the evidence was given again. He did speak from the dock. Now, that's an unsworn statement. So he doesn't swear to tell the truth. He's not subject to cross-examination. He just gets to tell his story. And his story was that, you know, he was a hardworking guy who had suffered this tragedy of his father being shot, him shooting his brother when he was a kid, having been shot in the head when he was performing a service as a result of performing a service for the police. He just sort of framed it as being, you know, performing a service, you know, doing his duty as a citizen rather than admitting that he was a paid informer. He said subsequent to being shot in the head, he'd you know, developed anger issues. He couldn't remember things. He was subject to fits. Sometimes he'd have these fits and he wouldn't be able to remember anything for hours. Ah. Um, all of this sort of stuff. And he had no memory of anything beyond holding Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson up. Uh, if he'd done anything to harm them, he hadn't done it consciously. And that was his, I guess, his defense. His sister and was going to testify. She was too upset to testify. His girlfriend, Linda, testified to say that, you know, yes, he'd been subject to all of these fits. He was often, you know, completely out of it for a long time. It all makes sense. You know, it's all coming together as a defense. Also, the fact that they can't prove that there was a sexual assault. For me, the only outstanding detail is the mask. Yeah, that well, that was what the the prosecution said was you know well he went out with a shotgun with a yeah. mask he was clearly going out to commit a crime a serious crime yeah a seri- absolutely a serious crime exactly and the defence actually said you know Snowy Mumby sits here this is Snowy Mumby mm. he's out of his mind he was quote in the grip of the demon of madness when he did this thing oh. the def- the prosecution said that is utter bullshit. Um, you know, it's incredibly convenient that he can't remember this significant period. He remembers everything before and after. He was able to, you know, drive a car, detain two people, bury them, mm. uh, sell the parts of the car, cover his tracks, all of this. Could he do all of this if he was out of his mind? Mm. Well, the jury was out and then the jury was back and he was found guilty of the murder of both Dorothy Denzel and Frank Wilkinson, and as was the case at the time, that was an automatic death sentence. Wow. Now, here's the, here's the kicker, though. When he committed the crimes, Jack Lang was in power. Jack Lang was a Labor politician. Labor was against the death sentence. There hadn't been anyone hanged in New South Wales since 1924. Due to all of the sort of things we've been discussing, Jack Lang was sacked by the governor on the 13th of May 1932. Mm. There was another election on the 12th of June that Jack Lang lost. So Moxley was convicted with a conservative government in power and they were for actually carrying out the death sentence. So Moxley tried to appeal. He actually sacked his uh, defence counsel. Uh, He said quite reasonably, and this was the thing during the trial, the defence didn't call any psychiatrist to testify that he was actually insane. And the reason for this, I think, was because immediately prior to this, that guy, Alfred Ball, I've been talking about, who tried to cut out his wife's heart, Mm. he had been tried for murder half an hour before the actual case began. A psychiatrist came and saw him, interviewed him for half an hour, and decided he was insane, just (sighs) basically on that, on that interview alone, and presented that testimony in court, and he was acquitted on the grounds of insanity even though it was documented he'd been a, a basher of this woman and she'd actually, her, her body still bore bruises from the last bashing she'd received before he cut, tried to cut out her heart. I mean, that's the old argument, isn't it? Well, you've got to be a bit insane to try and cut your wife's heart out. Yeah. However, you, you have to prove that you know what you're doing is actually the, the point that we're trying to make. And, and And similar to Moxley, it's like, well, you were sane enough to try and cover your tracks, to try and escape, to be on the run for all this period of time, surely that is proof enough that you knew what you were doing and you knew it was wrong. So the defence for Moxley had apparently approached 10 psychiatrists and psychologists in Macquarie Street to testify and to examine him, and they all refused. 
They didn't want a bar of it. They didn't want to be caught up in this another backlash of a, a killer going free. You'd be spewing, though, if you were Moxley because you'd think, I've got a bloody bullet in me head. That's right. I've got a, you know, head injury and I've got all of this background. Exactly. So he tried to, he, he sacked his um, defence counsel and represented himself seeking an appeal. And he was really blustery and he didn't understand that he actually had to present the evidence right there and then that would justify an appeal. He didn't have it. He wanted to call this, that and the other doctor. He wanted to call his sister. And the judge was basically saying, you need to actually present this now for us to grant you an appeal. And he wouldn't back down. And the guy said, well, you know, I'm willing to give you a three-week adjournment. Otherwise, it stands. And Moxley eventually backed down and said, okay. So he went back to Long Bay that night. While the rest of Australia is listening, the 1st of July, to the very first broadcast of the ABC, Moxley's in his jail cell going, okay, I've got three weeks to come up with something. He gives interviews uh, to the press. His sister you know, gives a massive interview to Smith Weekly about all this other trauma he supposedly had as a kid, you know, a fever that nearly killed him, being dropped on the head, falling downstairs, like just almost comical litany of, of head injuries that this guy had supposedly sustained, none of which that had been brought up in trial, which makes you wonder how much truth there was to them. In any event, he got a doctor to come and examine him. The doctor had known him back in the day and he found nothing wrong with him. There was also, you know, the idea that, you know, he had these bullet fragments actually lodged in his brain. The x-rays showed that they were in his head. There was three fragments in his head, but they weren't actually in the brain. They were sort of beneath the skin. And the doctor's opinions were that they would cause no sort of damage to him. I mean, this doesn't take into account the massive trauma of being shot in the head and having a a gun stuck in your mouth pretty much, thinking you're about to die. Um, So the appeal was denied. And the executive, despite uh, sort of a protest movement on, on his behalf, Uh, said that the death sentence would stand. In jail, Moxley uh, took great solace uh, from a Salvation Army chaplain. They met continually. Uh, Moxley would gaze out of his cell window at what he called his star. He wrote a quite sort of eloquent, beautiful even, uh, letter on the the morning of the 17th of August, 1932, and then he went to the hangman and... uh, the bolt was drawn, the trapdoor opened, and he dropped and didn't say a thing, didn't move. Apparently, he uh, died instantaneously. Now that you say all of that, now, you know, you, now that you're saying that he met with his salvo and that he looked at his star every night from his cell, I mean, it, it sort of made me realise that we hadn't talked a lot about what sort of bloke he was apart from his criminal yeah. life, you know, like he was, a, he was a cat burglar and he was all of these things. How did he treat, is there any way of knowing how he treated his family, How he, how he, what sort of father he was when he wasn't in jail? Here is a really poignant detail. So as I've said, he had a son, Douglas, who was 12. Moxley's girlfriend, Linda, had done her best to protect Douglas from this knowledge that his father was, you know, uh, on trial for murder and so forth. And when it was hopeless, that when, when his father was going to be hanged, Moxley wanted to see his son one last time. So the, the warders at Long Bay arranged it so that Moxley could be put into a room in what looked like a hospital bed in a hospital room. And Linda told Douglas that his dad was going to be having an operation and he might not survive. Oh. So they brought Douglas into Long Bay, into this hospital room, and Moxley said, you know, be, be brave. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do my best, but I might not make it. And here's a Bible to remember me by. So there is a real sort of sad human element to the man. I mean, Mackay, Big Bill Mackay, clearly had some sympathy for him. Like it came out in court that, you know, Mackay had given him money after the, he'd been shot in the head. Mackay testified that Moxley had undergone a distinct personality change after being shot in the head. Mackay did not, in in testimony, say, hey, he was my paid informer. There was no way that was going to be coming out in open court. It would, you know, stain the police superintendent's reputation to have that level of, you know, interaction on an official basis with his alleged double murderer. But he did say that he'd given money to Moxley and tried to encourage him you know, they were both positing it as Mackay's being a, a, a munificent fellow and Moxley being a struggling civilian trying to, you know, make his way in the Depression. So there was a sort of sense that there, he was a sympathetic character. Mm. 
And people who have so there has been arguments that he was actually innocent, innocent, as in he didn't do it because you know he had no history of violent crime, um, he had no history of sexual assault, and and that is, I mean, I have to say that is possible. I guess anything's possible. To which I would say, in the 1921 case, he had been charged initially with robbery with violence. He had actually been found with a gun, and he had said at that point, I didn't know what I was doing, which was very similar to the defense he'd use later. What I think happened is that I do think he was a traumatized dude. I mean, from the various things that had happened to him, I think that he did go out with the intention of perhaps robbing someone. Yep. And what happened was he had the fight as he testified with Frank and Dorothy and the mask the mask came off and as i've said this guy was super distinctive looking you'd pick him in any lineup out of any series of mugshots and frank's a strapping lad can i say frank frank's a strapping lad dorothy was also a an athlete so she was not yes. a, a shrinking violet she was a a sturdy woman so you you think about moxley's he's held up these people at gunpoint he's beat them he's robbed them Okay, so he had recently come out of jail after four years on a cat burglary beef. He was a habitual criminal. He was also a known police informer now. So if he was arrested for this and charged and convicted, he'd be looking at a decade at least for armed robbery and assault, perhaps even attempted murder, and he'd be in jail. And that would be a death sentence for a fizz gig, for an informer. So my thinking is that he had felt that he had no choice and he killed them. What I think happened was he tied them up to restrain them after beating them and then he shot Frank in the head and then he took Dorothy somewhere else and shot and maybe he you know she was so terrified and oh my god please don't kill me he's like okay I'm not going to kill you I'm going to let you go let's just walk over here put her against a tree and shot her as well now in doing all of that I think there is you know psychiatry and psychology at the time was you know not in its infancy but it's in its early stages so things like dissociative disorders were mm. not understood at all until the, I think it was first sort of identified in 1968. And this is the sort of state where, you know, due to immense trauma, he's now committed this crime and this situation's escalated where it is possible that he dissociated and actually, as would be made clear later in, in psychological studies, that in a dissociative state, you can still perform really complex tasks. So he could could have killed them, could have buried them, could have driven the car, could have done all of that, and actually had no memory of it at all. So the thing with you know uh, finding someone guilty is that one, you have to actually prove they had a guilty mind at the time. Which if that was the case, he didn't because he didn't really know what he was doing. The other thing is is if he truly didn't have any memory of the event. He couldn't actually provide himself with an adequate defense. So again, he couldn't be reasonably convicted. So did he do it? I think he did. Was he actually guilty? I don't think he was. Um, Nevertheless, he went to the gallows. Now, as we've said, Alfred Ball was acquitted on the grounds of insanity during the rest of the year, there would, as I've said, there was a murder wave. There would be a bunch of other really, really horrific crimes in which people would be convicted of manslaughter or convicted of murder, and their sentences would be commuted. And there would be other cases where people would also be found insane. So, while it's you know it's it's not a, very profitable to look back and try and judge the past on our terms, we can actually judge this year, this period, on their own terms where the very same government would set other people free or reduce the sentences or not hang them for crimes that were similar and there was less mitigating circumstances in terms of the, the person's uh, behavior and mentality. So, and you know, the fact that he was never really properly psychologically assessed uh, independently also I think is, is a, a travesty. Wouldn't it be fascinating to be able to go back in time and have what we would consider today a thorough clinical psychiatric examination Absolutely. of Absolutely, yeah. And that's the case with many, uh, almost yeah, all I of bet. the cases in my book. You know, the police were operating with the best they had at the time and under a lot of pressure. But, you know, 
if any of these cases in the book were examined today, they'd be solved one way or the other pretty quickly with things like you know, DNA and surveillance and GPS and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But you know, this this case, as shocking as it was, was just the prelude. I mean, during the period we've been talking about, there was a crime called the Hammer Horror in mm-hmm. Bellevue Hill, where a couple were beaten to death in their beds. Oh, sorry, he was beaten to death. She was left brain damage in their beds. And that actually happened, like, literally at the moment Moxley was being charged. They've got one monster behind bars and literally another horrific crime is happening at that very moment across the other side of the city. There was a woman who was poisoned in her Mossman home. There was a double shotgun murder in Cooma. This kept rolling on. So you get to a point where, you know, on a single page, you'll have three ongoing sort of murder mysteries still to be solved, and they stack up and they stack up and they stack up. By the end of the year, you'll have the Park Demon being hunted, a presumed serial killer. And then after that, the Human Glove mystery, which is just as gory and sensational as it sounds, and that leads directly into the into the pajama girl. What a great book you've written. The Murder Squad, The Monsters of the Great Depression. You know, you've got to be you and interested <laughs> in in historical crime and be constantly reading through these old new pa- newspapers and 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 reading your historical stuff to know and to be able to join the dots as to what's happening contextually, historically, socially, you know, what's happening to be able to put this together in the way that you do, which is so great. Thanks, mate. Thank you to our guest today, Michael Adams. There's a link in the show notes to his podcast, Forgotten Australia, a link to help you buy his book, The Murder Squad, How Australia's Toughest Cops Hunted the Monsters of the Great Depression, and also a link to his publisher's website where you can read a free excerpt. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13 yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. <laughs>